Hello and welcome to this Lancet Child and Adolescent Health podcast. I'm Francesca Toey and it's the 26th of July. Today we're discussing a review titled Effects of Poverty on Interacting Biological Systems Underlying Child Development. Joining me are two authors of the review, Dr Sarah Jensen and Professor Charles Nelson, who are both from the Boston Children's Hospital of Harvard Medical School in Boston, USA. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Our pleasure. In your review, you conceptualise poverty as a multidimensional construct of many co-occurring risk factors. What are some of the key risk factors related to poverty that negatively affect child development? Let me begin by just briefly setting the stage for an answer to this question and let Sarah then jump in. I think that there's been a lot of interest over the last 10 or 15 years in how poverty gets under the skin and begins to exert effects on development. But very few people have actually dug deeply into what poverty means. And is poverty really the causal player in bad outcomes? And I think the goal of this review is to sort of dig a little bit deeper, and that's what Sarah will now address. Yeah, so that's exactly the point of the review, that we're discussing that poverty is much more than just a deprivation of financial resources, but really correlates with many other exposures like malnutrition, so not having sufficient nutritious food, more frequent infections, and also higher levels of stress from financial hardship and also psychosocial sources of stress. So nutritious food, for instance, is essential for neural development and also for neural functioning, but it tends to be more expensive. It tends to be harder to get by, especially in low resource settings, which is what we really focus on in the review. Infection is more common among poor children because they live in poor housing environments, they have poor sanitation and may have poor access to healthcare. And there have been some recent research that has shown that infection and the associated inflammation that is the response of the body to the infection a negative impact on cognitive outcomes. So children that have had more frequent infections or have higher levels of biomarkers of inflammation have poorer outcomes. And then stress, of course, is something that has been studied for a long time and has been shown to correlate with changes in neural structure and neural functioning and also with poorer cognitive outcomes in children. So one way to to think of this is if you view this from 30,000 feet, there will be biological hazards such as inflammation and malnutrition, and there might be psychosocial hazards. These act independently and they act synergistically, so they're embedded in one another. And that makes it more difficult in some ways to sort of take apart the effects of poverty per se. We haven't actually defined what you class as poverty yet, but in your review, you use the World Bank's definition of people living on less than $1.90 per day. Yeah, so that's the definition that we refer to. But the point of the review is also really to say that, you know, we we need maybe a financial definition of poverty because that helps us identify children who are poor. But really, it's not just the fact that they're poor, that they don't have sufficient income, but it's all of these other things that we need to consider in research and interventions, like all the risk factors that we just discussed, you know, malnutrition and infection and stress. And keep in mind that poverty is a relative term in some respects, so that In our work in Bangladesh, we work in communities where there is profound poverty, but there are some families that make more money than other families, and they may feel relatively affluent, because it's not affluent by Western standards. Could you give some examples of how these risk factors that you have just mentioned interact to affect neurocognitive development in children? So these are some of the things that make um, this, this research so complex, because we have a pretty good idea about some of the direct effects of, for instance, malnutrition and inflammation and stress and how they affect neural development, which in turn affects how children function cognitively. But 
Um, the more we, we read about this literature, the more we realized that these different risk factors also act along shared physiological pathways. So, for instance, malnutrition obviously is associated with a lack of energy, which affects the body's ability to fight off infections and respond to other co-occurring risks. So, malnutrition can also affect barrier functioning in the skin and the intestines, which makes malnourished children more vulnerable to become ill if they're exposed to pathogens. So children that are malnourished are really at an increased risk of poor outcomes when they're also exposed to infections, which they're more likely to if they're poor. And similarly, infection is associated with increased risk of malnutrition because children who are sick might eat less. They also have less energy because just keeping up an inflammatory response really requires a lot of energy that takes some of the energy that children otherwise need to grow and to develop. And then infection um, affects the intestines and the ability of the intestines to absorb nutrients from the food that malnourished children do eat. So it's a really complex picture. And it's the same if you look at the stress response. So prolonged stress is associated with something that we refer to as allostatic load, which is really a state of imbalance across many different systems, including metabolic pathways that affect growth of the child um, and also immune functioning. And of course, the stress response becomes dysregulated if you're exposed to stress for a long period of time. In the review, we're really trying to explain some of these really complex pathways through which exposures impact child development. So permit me to give sort of a, uh, an example of how this might look. Imagine a child who is suffering from chronic diarrhea, which leads them to be listless and not very engaged. Now, we know that the quality of maternal care has a big impact on cognitive development and language development. But now a mom has a child who doesn't feel like playing, doesn't interact very much, so the mother changes how she interacts with the child and maybe interacts less. Now the child's diarrhea is treated, they feel much better, then the mother accordingly responds by interacting more. So you can see that a child with chronic illness can have a very different pattern of cognitive development based in part on how they interact with their caregiver. So this again is an example of how these things are sort of embedded. And then that's an, an important example because caregiving is really something that comes up um, across all of these different systems that caregiving can be affected by the children's the child's health status, um, so whether they're malnourished or ill, and also stress, like stress from the environment, affects parents' ability to provide um, appropriate and stimulating care for the child. And that has been shown widely to be one of the mediators of the effect of poverty on both cognitive outcomes and on brain outcomes in children. So exposure to these risk factors, however, doesn't actually necessarily lead to adverse outcomes. So children living in poverty can have highly variable outcomes. Can you expand on this point? This is a very important point to understand. It has to do, of course, with individual differences. Not all children exposed to bad things early in life have bad outcomes. And similarly, not all children exposed to good things early in life have good outcomes. And we don't fully understand this, but we think it, at the heart of it, has to do with an interaction between a child's underlying genotype and how that genotype interacts with experience, and that some children may have genes that confer protection and others that may confer risk. And depending on how those alleles play out and interact with the environment, that could indicate individual pathways. There are, of course, environmental structures that also indicate individual differences, and that may have to do with how parents respond to some children. So, for example, a very behaviorally inhibited child may require a certain type of caregiving 
for that child to have an optimal outcome. But if they don't get that kind of caregiving, their outcome may not be as good. So those are some great examples again. So um, you mentioned genotypes as one of the intrinsic factors. Other things that really affect child outcomes are, for instance, related to the, the time of the exposure, so how old the child is when an exposure occurs because the child's maturational stage and the kind of the processes that are ongoing when an exposure occurs, especially in terms of neurodevelopment, um, have an important impact on how severe and what kind of processes that are affected by a risk exposure. So normally we find that children who are exposed to, for instance, a nutritional deficiency really early in life during prenatal or early postnatal development will show more severe effects of the exposure relative to a child that's exposed later in life. All other intrinsic or child-related factors that affect the impact of a risk exposure are, for instance, the child's sex or even the child's gender because of the way that the parents interact with the child and the expectations they have to the different types of the milestones that children reach at different time points and the health status as we've discussed before. As you mentioned in your review and speaking here, it's not easy to disentangle the effects of these co-occurring risk factors and protective factors. So what would you say are some of the next steps to take this field of research forward? Well, I think one approach would be if in a large sample of children and families, for example, we could begin to identify clusters that hang together. So going back to the previous question, what if we genotype a sample of 1,000 children and we could identify the genes that have been associated with risk or protection? We could cluster those children into one category. Or we could take the children who have high quality versus low quality of caregiving. And when you start to do this, you can sort of systematically manipulate or really control for background variables, then to see how these sort of come together. So this subgroup analysis approach is, is really great, but it requires large samples, which can sometimes be a problem, especially in low resource settings when you do research. And some of the other things that, that people do and that can help are randomized controlled trials, especially if these are big and have like very distinct manipulation. So a randomized controlled trial has the advantage that it allows us to manipulate a specific aspect of a child's exposure while presumably keeping everything else equal across all children. So there will be a subgroup of children who, for instance, receive um, an intervention that could be a nutritional supplement or a psychosocial stimulation. And then we'd compare those children to children that did not receive that intervention but are otherwise similar. That's considered one of the best approaches to looking at causal effects, although we can't really say that it's saying anything causal because there are still many other co-occurring risk factors that we may not be able to take into account with this design. And sometimes an intervention can affect other processes as well. So in the review, we give the example that many cognitive stimulation interventions, for instance, also tend to cause a decrease in maternal depression. And it it can be hard to tell whether the effect of the intervention, I mean, often we find that the intervention has a positive effect, but is that because of the increased stimulation? Or is it really because that we decrease maternal depression, which then has a positive impact on the child? So even randomized controlled trials are not always perfect for dissociating effects, but it gives us another insight than correlational or observational studies. And then longitudinal studies are very important because they allow us to look at change over time, which can give insight into some of the processes that are ongoing and also are important for understanding timing effects of like when a change occurs. So ideally, we would like studies that start before an exposure and then see if an exposure is really related to a change over time. Let me just elaborate on the longitudinal study part and why this is important. 
that sometimes there are some children who are influenced powerfully by things in their world early on. Other children are buffered against that and may not show effects until later on. And unless you see the same cohort over time, you could be misled to thinking that what the general effects are, because again, you'll have individual differences. And the second is that those effects could wash out over time or grow over time. So if I can be permitted just one example, for more than 16 years, two colleagues and I have been working in Romania in children who've been abandoned to institutions. And we did a randomized control trial, taking some out of the institution and putting them into families and others stay in the institution. 16 years later, we find that there were some children who early on looked like they were really suffering and they remained that way. But over time, others who looked bad early recovered later. And what that permitted us to do is to start to look at the various co-occurring factors that led to different developmental trajectories. And I think it's very, very important for us to sort of be able to take these co-occurring factors and pull them apart. And so the, the sort of three approaches we just summarized, the subgroup analysis, the RCT, or randomized control trial, and the longitudinal approach collectively will allow us to sort of disaggregate these variables more powerfully. Um, and then one other potentially very important part of research will be to increasingly use biomarkers in research. So biomarkers are physiological signatures of an exposure um, that we can quantify in, in a measurable way. And then that will allow us to see which systems are really showing a disruption and might be causing an effect on neural development or cognitive outcomes in children. So some examples of biomarkers are, for instance, neuroimaging, but also markers of nutrition and inflammation and will be important to really understand whether effects of, for instance, malnutrition, are they really driven by lack of nutrients or are effects driven by malnourished children being more sensitive to, for instance, infections? And is that part of the pathway that links stunted growth and malnutrition to poor cognitive outcomes? Once again, thank you for joining us to discuss your review piece, which is now available to read online. Thank you very much. Thank Our you. pleasure. Thank you. And thank you all for listening.